We can be dream makers, nurturing, compassionate. Nosotros podemos ser más unidos. We can be anything. I'm Grant Oliphant. This is We Can Be. For this episode, David Conrad is our guest. Among other talents, David is an actor and a writer. David and I will talk about place, how a place is defined, how a sense of place informs who we are, and how we interact with the world. What you hear are the sounds of the Edgar Thompson works in Braddock, Pennsylvania, where David lives. E.T., as it is known, was Carnegie's first steel mill, and now it's among the last of the steel mills in our region. Back in the 80s, we interviewed like everybody over 80 in Homestead. And sitting down, like having a shot and a beer in some guy's like basement bar at 10 in the morning, the stories that came out of these folks, the one unifying thing that they all said was, what was the weirdest thing? What was the hardest thing about the collapse? They said, the silence. They didn't say the money. They didn't say the loss of jobs. They all sat there and went, okay, hey, it was this person's fault or that, but you got to move on. The thing that was weird for them, especially the women, was the silence. It was gone. And for them, it was that, that there was always somebody working, that there was always a factory running, that there was always this thing alive that meant we have jobs and the economy right. is moving. The noise defined community. I mean, them. think about that. Yeah. And I feel that. Like when the ET isn't going, you look around and you're like, oh, please start again. That silence is the most haunting thing you've ever heard. David Conrad is also an advocate for place and an advocate for Pittsburgh. I'm privileged to know David as a friend. He's immersed in our rich history and labor and in the arts. He's a deep thinker about what makes for the qualities of place. I don't know about deep thinker, but... Uh... Yeah, I saw you wince on that one. That was a test of your humility, actually. Oh, good. <laughs> so Excellent. It's, uh, it's actually one of the things I love about you. When you came back to this town, you came in not with an expectation that you should be entitled to any sort of different treatment, but a full commitment to being part of the community and being part of a particular community within Pittsburgh, Braddock. Let's talk a little bit about the work you've done and, and how it's given you not just a love of the art that you pursue, but of the places. I think it's uh, the word romance is really actually works for how I feel about Pittsburgh or, or a town or place is, is that it's a physical reaction. It's a dance. It's a movement through it. It's a reaction to the land itself. I remember years ago, I read American Childhood by Annie Dillard. And the opening lines are about the shape of the land will be the last thing she remembers mm. when she's forgotten the president's name and, and who she is. Mm -hmm. And I remember that ringing in my head. And at that time, I was in college and wasn't thinking about coming back to Pittsburgh. And suddenly, it, it just hit me. And I've since then been drawn back to my hometown. And uh, in terms of what I would be involved with here, I've been blessed with great teachers and push towards one of the strongest values that I'd like to try to embody or that I try to hold to is listening. And um, as an actor, especially hearing stories and taking them in without qualifying them, you know, just listen to people's narratives, what they are, what they talk about, what they react to, what they love, what they don't love, what their accents are, what they emphasize. For me, I loved that quality in Pittsburghers on all levels. Is that something that has helped you in understanding this place when you've come back? I grew up 
I wouldn't say in a tough neighborhood, but I grew up in a neighborhood where you had to sort of fight for your place or that you really weren't listened to. Mm. And in the comparison to a lot of people, uh, I had it easy. But I do think in general in a lot of the quote-unquote Rust Belt cities or cities that have gone through industrial turmoil or collapse of their industries, there is a, a sense that our voices aren't worth being heard, that the town you come from is someplace you should be glad to get out of. I and mean, the number of times I've heard people say to me, oh, I bet you're glad you got out of there. I wince, and I think about the thousands and thousands of children and young folks who grow up with that being spoken into their ears. And for me, it was really coming back and thinking, you know, is there a way I can, I can at least communicate or at least try to evoke in folks who, who think they need to leave Pittsburgh or, or Braddock or Homewood or Hazelwood or Brookline, you know, or Chalfont or all these places that people just look at and kind of scoff at, that your story and your narrative and what you find beautiful or what shocked you or what you've been through is as valuable as anything Arthur Miller or August Wilson ever wrote. So if there was a way I could do that in Pittsburgh or try to respond to it, I just tried to do it on different levels. I mean, it's very yeah. unorganized and and it could be buying a painting from somebody who I think is remarkable, who works as a part-time sushi chef downtown, or interviewing kids in Braddock to say, hey, tell me your stories for six weeks, and then try to be like, okay, let's mold those into monologues, right, or improv. That to me, there just seems something weird and rich about Pittsburgh, and I'm sure that's a personal prejudice, right? I grew up here. But I do think there's something odd about this bizarre collection of weird tribes and nationalities that got pushed into these kind of Balkan valleys and became this crazy city. That know? is actually the history of this place. <laughs> and, it's, um, and there is something distinctive about that. Well, I mean, I think it was, God, it was 20 years now or 25 years that uh, Brendan Gill, is that his name, wrote the article for The New Yorker about Pittsburgh. Right. And he said if Pittsburgh was in the middle of Europe, people would travel a thousand miles to see it. And I, he talked about size and comprehensible neighborhoods. And he mentioned this sort of idea of a European mid-sized city at about, you know, 230 to about 500,000. And how that, to most human beings, is something that they can make sense of, they can comprehend, they can wrap their arms around. And bigger than that, you start to lose the identity of a city. It becomes sort of a commercial entity that, that the folks from that side of the city are completely different from you. And I think that Pittsburgh is that sort of weird, exact size, that even if you're from Wexford or if you're from Aspinwall, you're kind of from the same place. You feel, I mean, for lack of a better word, Steeler Nation, right? Like, there's an identity as a Pittsburgher, as a Western Pennsylvanian, that we're we're kind of a weird city-state. We're a particular kind of Appalachian urban center. I, I think there's something culturally deep or dense about the, say, tribes of Eastern Europeans and the Irish who came here and settled in certain places and because of the geography stayed there for generations. I think that that's a hard thing to wipe away. And even if you lose 80,000 jobs in the Mon Valley or Allegheny County, which we did over a period of like 10 or 20 years, the majority of the population or almost the majority saw what it takes to enable an industrial economy, what the abuses are, what the uses are, what the, what the power struggles are, like hand to hand. They saw what companies would do. They saw what foremen would do. Their parents belonged to unions. Their grandparents did. They fought for the right to do that. Their grandparents were coal miners, possibly. I mean, I'm not saying that's, that's not everybody in Pittsburgh by a long shot, but that knowledge, I think, affected a certain kind of, what do you want to call it, pragmatic sort of common sense or um, a kind of social democratic leaning that I think is rich here.
the narrative Pittsburgh has held on to, this is still who we are, even though these jobs might not be here. I did a, a workshop once with kids at Steel Valley Middle School, and I talked to them about like labor ownership. And I said to them, you know, well, your grandfather or grandmother worked at the steel mill for 30 years. What does that mean to you? In, a weird, in any way, do you think that they own a piece of that mill? And they said, yeah, I think it, one of the kids said, yeah, I think a piece of that mill belongs to my grandfather. And belongs I thought, to. Love <laughs> I thought, that. I thought, that's an eight-year-old, like, you know, talking about social democratic labor theory, to use a silly word. Like, that was the natural instinct. Not, right. no, it belongs to the people who own it. I love that story. Yeah. And that is, that is actually... It hit me like a ton of bricks. Yeah, this kid yeah. had never seen a steel mill. That, oh. was a, that was a mall with a Starbucks and a, and a Barnes & Noble where his parents shopped, right? He'd never seen a steel mill. A big ceremony Friday, touting a site many believe would be ideal for locating Amazon's second headquarters, along with 50,000 jobs. It's a wonderful, wonderful site that puts us in a very competitive advantage with that company. Uh, it begins with an A, ends in an N, uh, so Amazon, something like that. They might want to think about where to come. That is the voice of Allegheny County Executive Rich Fitzgerald. David and I talked about how to keep the unique identity that he just described while continuing to grow and attract companies like Google and Amazon. How have you wrestled with this notion of preserving the identity that you cherish at the same time as trying to keep the city relevant and alive? Well, there's that great article in the Wall Street Journal about five years ago. The guy did a study on accents. And uh, he was supposed to spend, I think, two days in Pittsburgh, and he stayed a week and then came back for another week. And I think someone, a friend of mine was actually talking to him in a bar, and he was laughing, drunk, saying, you know, you guys are like the Galapagos Islands of American accents. Because the general idea is as wealth increases, as connectivity increases, as development happens, the, the rough edges or the particular edges of accents in America are smoothed out. And he said that actually the opposite's happening in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. As the economy improves in Pittsburgh, your accent still stays the same. And I, I just thought that was a symbol of, I don't know how much we're going to change. I, I do think that um, there will be sort of bends in the personality of the city with an influx of folks who didn't grow up here. But I, I don't know. I think, the, I think the die here is pretty strong. I think you get in these waters and you end up kind of becoming a Pittsburgher. Uh, I think the future is bright for Pittsburgh remaining Pittsburgh. Uh, and I think it's great that people complain that it won't be. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Which they will. Yeah, sure. Which they absolutely yeah. will. When I first met you, I think the storyline on David Conrad was there was a piece of David Conrad that wanted to be in Pittsburgh to help reinvent Pittsburgh. And then there was a side of you, a piece of your story that was about escaping to go do art. So, you know, you were Hollywood actor. You had to go back to do you're acting in LA, like many folks in your profession, kind of a global citizen. So you do time in New York and you do time in, in London mm -hmm. and you have this multi-platform existence. It doesn't feel to me as though people have to escape to do art anymore, maybe at the level of what you're doing, but the notion that, they, that the artistic person can't reside here and make that an embedded part of what Pittsburgh is seems to have disappeared. I don't know. I keep coming back here and I keep still seeing, I mean, even the millennials that are moving here, and it's a, what does that word even mean? But these people who try to move to this town, you can't work as an artist in a certain huge city because you can't afford it. The rent's too strong. you got to work too much. And then you don't have enough hours to actually make the thing you want to make. So they go, okay, screw it. I'm going to buy a house in Pittsburgh 
in Sharpsburg and I'm going to have my printing press in the front room and I'm going to make the art I want to make and just stay alive enough to do that, which you can do here still. And I don't think that that's going to change. And to me, that's an ethic of making. That's an ethic of labor. That's an ethic of a value of a neighborhood, which isn't too much different than what the city's always been about. If they want to have like $4 cups of coffee and microbrews, like more power to them. You know, it's fascinating the way you describe the emergent evolution of the art scene. Certainly from the perspective of the work we do, we'd, we'd love that to continue. We actually think a, a more creative community is, is going to be better for the future of the region. And I love the notion that it's tied to the making history, you know, the history of the region as, as a group of makers as well. It's a strong myth. I was thinking about this recently. I did a talk over in a coffee shop in Homestead. These kids, right, these kids who grew up in Steel Valley and they didn't want to leave. One of them works as a registered nurse and the other guy's a, a, a war vet, did three tours in Iraq and now runs a yoga spinning studio in Homestead. And the other guy's a bean roaster. Like they wanted to stay in their hometown. They bought a building. They don't rent it, they bought it. That kind of sweat equity is just invaluable. But anyhow, I was doing a talk at his place and um, I, I thought to myself, Detroit collapses, Missalanti, Massillon, other towns, Toledo, they fall apart, right? Detroit made cars. That's a thing, which is not very much different than this microphone or an iPhone. It's an idea as much as it is a thing. We made steel, which is in some sense an element. And we make a thing and we send it out and other people could make products out of it. But Pittsburghers made, in some weird way, what they consider to be like air and water. Steel, glass. There are these essential elements that have this kind of core good to them in your imagination. And you can't sit there and go, okay, yeah, cars, they pollute the environment. Like, or they do this, or I don't want a car, I want a bike. They're all still made out of steel. Right. And you could sit there and say, I was a steel worker. I just made this thing that, like, built the world. There's something so simple, but I think that it's a thing that people react to. You see those mills and they look like some weird structure to the religion of I don't know what. There's something mythological about it. They look like giant cathedrals. You're a writer as well. What's fascinating you right now? What's fascinating me? I'm really interested in when I was in my 20s and the first time I came back here to kind of consecrate myself to learning about, you know, the steel industry and and the history of the valley. And I hooked up with these great socialists and they are straight up Marxists. They don't apologize. Charlie McAllister, David Demarest, Mike Stout, John Herr. I mean, these guys are lefties. Tony Novosil. They will not apologize and God bless them. And that to me was my history lesson of Pittsburgh and the Mon Valley. And one of the great heroes of those guys was John McLucky, who was the mayor of Homestead during the Homestead strike, who you know stood up to the forces of the Carnegie Steel Company and Henry Clay Frick and fought them tooth and nail until he lost. He was banished, exiled, and had to leave the United States. He couldn't get a job anywhere in the United States. He ended up living in Mexico and uh, married a woman in Mexico, uh, worked in the mines there, which was not an easy life, and then one day was approached by a representative of the Carnegie Steel Company, and offered $10,000 as a way of saying, hey, we're sorry that happened to you. And McLucky pushed it back at the guy and said, no thanks. Now, that kind of moral guts or crazy stupidity uh, (laughs) amazes me. And um, 
I've been sort of looking at a, the story of a conversation, if it ever happened, between Frick and McLucky. And it's one of these things you just keep rewriting in your head of, you know, it's the meeting you want to hear behind closed doors. Like, you know, Louis Armstrong and Bix Beiderbecker, did they ever play together? That kind of thing. Did Fitzgerald and Hemingway, and what did they say when they were by themselves? So I've been working on a, a kind of story about that, that people are working on. And there's going to be a giant, either a miniseries on TV or a giant sort of Nicholas Nickleby theater piece about Frick and Carnegie and the steel industry and the history of American labor that's going to be produced possibly by the National Theater in London or Showtime. And uh, the actor Mark Rylance is behind that. Steven Spielberg might be interested. Tom Stoppard might work on it. It's kind of a big deal, and it's an interesting thing to see happen. And what a great thing that finally someone is looking at that story and, and diving into it, you know, rather Thank than thinking you. it has to hang on like a love story or something. And what a great name. Honest John McLucky. Yeah. Is that a joke? Yeah. If you tried to use that in a script, they'd be like, ah, no one would believe it. The notion of the place of the working man or woman in the society of the future is as relevant today, perhaps more so than it was at the time of Henry Clay Frick. It's the biggest, you know, it, it's the hinge upon which the future of this country and especially yeah. this city rests on. Because if you imagine that 15% of your population can be your economy, and if 15% of your population is the folks in the upper, upper level of the healthcare industry, some drillers and some money managers, like that's your economy, you're screwed because they're dependent on a boom and bust uh, nature of dividend trading, and 80% of the people are your service economy, then we might as well throw in the towel now. And if that's the future of Pittsburgh, we're done. We're in a moment where there is this kind of broken political dialogue, where the president of the United States really does seem to articulate policies that don't focus on how to really restore the working economy. But how do we get back to that? I don't think, I think Pittsburgh, to kick it back to Pittsburgh, I think it's our responsibility because I think, I think most people under 35 don't even think on a federal or state level. I think they look at it as a lost cause or a, or a madness. Yeah. I do think they think locally. I think they do look at Millvale and go, we can rebuild Millvale. We can rebuild Hazelwood. We can move in here and conceive of this town. And these old churches could be this, and these old schools could maybe be revived. And if, let's put five stores on the street. We can make that happen with a garden and a farm. Boom, we made a community. I think that's the way the new generation thinks. And I think all politics is really local. I mean, hell, Baldy Regan said that, right? Like the North Side political boss knew that. Well, we have the number one city in the country, and rightfully so, because God has blessed us with a combination of good people, both immigrants and the people that were here for hundreds of years. I'm going to talk Pittsburgh. What do I say? Yunz guys. Yunz guys? Yunz guys. All right. Hey, Yunz guys, don't go anywhere. We'll be back. This is Today in Pittsburgh on NBC. One of the greatest things I heard recently was the women who run the Braddock Library have been offered the control of a building that they can get rents from to do community service, to do youth project workshops, to do women's health workshops. And the thing they said was, instead of how much does the building cost and how much can we make from it, they said, would it be okay if in a number of years that no one owned the building and it belonged to the community? That is moving leadership. That is people saying, we're creating a center to which people can come to for free that is free, that is theirs. And that the center of development is a free space rather than a commercial space. It's a personal space. It's a, you know, like the old Carnegie libraries, like the, the, the spaces you could go without spending a dime and learns from, that they're trying to do that again. 
in a neighborhood that's desperate for commercial development, they're not looking for that. They're looking for a free community space. Uh, and there's something remarkable about that. I can't quite put my finger on it, but... You know, Pittsburgh still has some of the worst air and water quality of a city of its size in the country. I mean, we're sort of a super fun site. And until there's political leadership that addresses that, that actually does the kind of grand change that's going to take to fix that, you're going to poison a good percentage of your population. You're going to have cancer rates that are the same they've been since the steel industries were here. And that is unforgivable and actually economically really stupid. But again, you can't create an economy that's dependent on a one-trick industry, drilling or fracking, which, you know, fine, it has to be done, but you can't imagine that that's going to be the thing that saves you, or tech or the health industry. To rest on that is to, you know, ignore the lessons of the past and, and also to abandon, you know, a, a livable city. The reason I think people like living here with their families and thinking, this is good for my kids, this is a good place to raise a family, is because that to them is in some sense more important. Mm. And a lot of people will talk about, ah, my job is this, but this, my family is rich. Now, I don't think that's some awful thing that, oh, people have to do some job that they don't love. I think that working simply for money is, in some people's minds, not the point of life. Now, we've been taught all our lives that an economy and wealth are defined by a thing called a GNP or a GDP. I think that in 100 years or longer, this is going to be the same kind of thing that people look back on and go, can you believe they had slavery? Can you believe women were treated this way? I think people will look back on us and go, they were more interested in how cheap a thing was rather than how many people in one neighborhood had health care. Where was the daycare? How were the children taken care of? What was the health care level? You know, how many buildings had tax liens on them? Like that actually is the measure of wealth. And until we push towards focusing on those, we're always going to have an economy where we're going to hire anybody for the lowest amount, and businesses are going to be running towards the cheapest way to do something. And if you do that, you'll eventually lose. And we've been living that we've for, done it for, for a while. Years. Yeah. I think a lot of millennials and younger folks talk about local cultural richness. I just think sometimes their sort of economic political awareness and the fight it takes to maintain that is maybe a little non-combative. And I think actually we need to like bring back the spirit of the 30s labor leaders and you know Walter Reuter and the guys who fought for the rights of people, literally fought for it. Or like the SEIU, those people march in the streets. They realize who they are, they're organizers. And I think you gotta bring that back because the folks out there who, who sort of fight for Trumplandia, they're gonna fight you with sticks. And I think that people need to take a stand and say, okay, you know, that's not free speech. That's actually violence. I think you need to actually say, no, you don't get to do that. And you need to stand up to folks like that. And um, I believe that that is, in some respects, easier to do when you're focused on the local level because you see it right. and you see who yeah. it affects for Everybody real. Sees it. Yeah. All I can do is say amen to yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Pittsburgh's such an amazing place. And I think the foundation communities with their different officers and their concentration on, on so many different levels is a remarkable thing. I just think that maybe the political leadership's a little behind the times and, and people still rely on, you know, some big businesses and the Allegheny Conference pushing things left and right. And I don't know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how wise all that is, you know. Well, you've articulated, I think, the challenge that we, like a lot of communities, face. In yeah. our case, it's, um, it really is this distinction about which type of future we want to have and what sort of a mix of industries and economy we want to invest in, uh, yeah. what we value. Yeah. I really want to thank you for 
sharing your thoughts with Thank us you. today. Good uh, to be here. You, you actually are a deep thinker, so <laughs> you, you may not like owning that, but you just but stick you to the specifics. Do. It's always better to tell other people's stories. You know what I mean? It's always better to like, you know, relay the accent or the particular example of somebody telling you something because they're the, the truest things. I mean, the most fun about, again, being in Pittsburgh is just to go somewhere, sit in a bar and listen to somebody talk because the stuff that comes out of people's mouths, unbelievable, yeah. honestly. The way David Conrad loves Pittsburgh, to me, captures beautifully the way a lot of Americans feel about the communities that they call home. He mentions in our conversation the concept of a community based on pragmatic common sense. And really, if you think about it, that's one of the core American ideals that can only be rebuilt at the local level. We sometimes treat community as an afterthought, but community is where Research has proven we get our, our sense of, of identity, we get our sense of purpose in life, where we fit in, and we, we quite literally get our sense of place. And to find somebody who celebrates that is to capture, I think, an idea that is core to the future of what we all would like this country to be about, and we can rebuild it here at home. This is Grant Oliphant. Thank you for joining us for We Can Be.